wonderful. Uh, for every problem, there is an answer that is simple, neat, and wrong. <laughs> I love that statement. Um, I think it's very true. Life can get very complex, and God is not afraid of complexity. And we're about to dive into a very complex piece of writing today. I'm going to start my series on the Great Revelation. And the, this is an introduction, and uh, the, the real title of it is going to be The Almighty. Today we're going to be talking about who is the Almighty. Um, what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing. Father God, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. May there be harmony on earth as there is in heaven and always will be. Come Lord Jesus, come. So I'm going to be dividing the book into eight. I'm not dividing the book into eight. The book comes at us div divided into eight sections with an introduction, a short introduction of eight verses. I want us to acknowledge a couple of things before I dive in. The first thing I'd like us to acknowledge is that we have an insatiable appetite for the dystopian <laughs> as human beings, especially uh, Western thinking uh, human beings. We have an insatiable appetite for the dystopian. And the experience of Western life has been largely the inverse of that. I'm not saying that it always will be. I'm just saying we need to acknowledge that. I also would like to ask a question. Does Revelation, the writing of Revelation, give cause for optimism before the return of Christ? I would answer absolutely. In fact, I would say that that is exactly why the book was written. Now, I'm not suggesting utopia, right? I, I know that the inverse of dystopia is utopia. That was a phrase coined a couple of hundred years ago. And uh, utopia, the concept of everything being exactly the way you want it, or that, exactly the way it should be, the ethical idea. Dystopia is inverse of that. Dystopia is chaos and the lack of utopia. I'm not suggesting that utopia is going to come before Christ comes back again. But I do believe that there is great cause for optimism. So I'm going to be looking at the first eight verses of the book today. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation, singular, it's not the revelation, singular, revel, the, the revelation is how it's titled. We're going to read the first eight verses. You guys ready for that? Ready to dive in? You excited about it? A little bit of fear and trepidation like me? Were you excited about it? I'm excited about it, to be honest. Looking at this phenomenal book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. <clears throat> and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who, and, who, and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of all the dead, and the ruler of kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm going to pray, and here it is. I think particularly for this series, I want to get down on my knees. You're welcome to join me if you'd like to. Um, we're not dealing here just with some old writing. We're dealing with the words of Jesus Christ. And I feel that it would, it would be good for us to pay him the honor that he's, that he's worthy. So I'm going to kneel to pray. And hopefully I can get up. Otherwise, I'll just preach on my knees. How about that? That's also fine. So Lord Jesus, I just want to come before you kneeling because you are worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor and all majesty. And I want to acknowledge that this book is about you. It is revealed by you. And I want to acknowledge all that you are currently doing before God on our behalf. And I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death, your resurrection, and for the resurrection of your saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's see if I can get up. Yeah, I can. What a wonderful privilege it is to talk through this book. I, I, I'm not trying to go through it in detail. The ladies are doing a wonderful job of that right now. And I, I want to encourage you to. I'm going to give, be giving you some homework today. But I am going to try and give an overview of what this book is about. So the book, firstly, is a revelation. It is a, it is a revelation of one thing. The one thing that it is revealing is Jesus Christ, the beginning and the end. Jesus bookends all of reality. He is, Jesus Christ is the Almighty. I've got a couple of videos for us to watch today, so Kylie's going to get the first one ready. And this video is called The Lord of the Sabbath. It's about the, being, Him being the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll say that He is the Lord of the Sevens. You ready for that, Kylie? Give me a, okay, great. The number seven is a big deal in the Bible. Yeah, in biblical Hebrew, the word seven is connected to the idea of fullness or completeness. And that's something we all long for, but don't often experience. Instead, we find ourselves working endlessly, fighting back chaos with no real rest. Yes. God tells them that every seventh day, they are to stop their work, or in Hebrew, to Shabbat, so that they can rest and enjoy God's good world. So take a whole day to live as if the ultimate rest has already come. Yeah, this is the Sabbath, celebrated every week on the seventh day. But there's more. The Sabbath is just one of seven festivals that Israel practiced every year each one anticipating that seventh day rest. That is a lot of sevens. And there's even more. Every seven years, the Israelites were to liberate slaves, forgive debts, and let the land rest for a whole year. And then, every seven times seven years was the ultimate seventh day rest, called 
the year of Jubilee. If anyone had lost their land or gone into debt, all was forgiven, everything restored. Wow, so the Sabbath, these feasts, the year of Jubilee, it's all pointing towards the hope of future rest. Right. But notice, Jesus timed his death to take place at the end of the week. His body rested in a tomb during the Sabbath, and on the eighth day, he rose from the dead. Oh, wait, the eighth day? You mean the first day of a new week? Exactly. Jesus' resurrection was like the first day of a new creation, where God's light and life broke into the darkness. Wonderful. Seven sevens, that's what the Bible resonates with all the way through, from the beginning in Genesis Seven, seven, seven. I'm thinking of like a real good old uh, queen harmony, you know, or some kind of seven harmony. That's what the Bible resonates with until we get to Jesus. And then another one is added. And so John writes this book as eight sets of seven. That's why I'm going to do eight series after this one, because there are eight of them. So I don't want to spoil it for later on, but... Keep that in mind when we read through Revelation. A little bit of history about the book and its author. We know that the book was written by somebody called John. Very common name in Jesus' time. Am I I keep cutting out or are we good? Okay. Um, A couple of clues as to why we believe that it was written by John, Jesus' disciple and friend, the brother of James. Well, only John refers to Christ as the Word. He refers to Christ as the Word in his Gospel and again in his letters and again in the book of Revelation. He also refers to Christ as the Lamb in the Gospel and the Revelation. The structures of seven we see in Revelation, but we also see it in John's Gospel. He, speaks of the, he, he records seven miracles that Jesus did, for example, and the seven I Am statements of Christ are recorded in, in John's Gospel. We also know that John was an apostle to the seven churches who were the objects or the, 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 the um, recipients of these letters. And we also know that Eusebius, the Roman historian, confirmed that John was in exile on Patmos. And John says so in verse 9. There's no real reason for a Jewish man to be on Patmos except under exile. We also know that he returned to Ephesus after the death of uh, Emperor Domitian in AD 96. The overwhelming context for Christians in Roman-occupied Asia Minor was persecution. This is post-Nero persecution. So people weren't necessarily being impaled on sticks and set alight, but there was a lot of demands on Christians for emperor worship. For There was a lot of Jewish opposition to the message. And of course, the Christians in Asia Minor were faced with the hedonist culture of their day. And the revelation was written by John as an encouragement to overcome with faith, with your faith intact, no matter what. The overriding optimism. We got to, have to start our eschatology with the Bible, not with what movies are trying to tell us about the end. The churches, the various churches, are in a variety of conditions. We'll look at that next week. They're not all in the same place. Some of them are strong in one area and weak in another area. Some of them are just plain weak. Others are strong. 
And John's writing to all of them. It's also a cryptic message. It's a revelation, but it's a, it's a revelation tied within a cryptic message. It's very clever. Remember that, that John was writing under Roman surveillance. And the Romans were looking for any blatant or, or overt anti-Roman sentiments. And you'll notice when you read the book, you read even John's letters, there is nothing that's overtly anti-Roman unless you know your Old Testament. And then you can see where Rome pops up. We can be a little bit like Romans ourselves, the way we think, the way we operate. So we, we've got to kind of uncultural ourselves and put us in the in the place of a, a first century Christian to understand a lot of what John was speaking about. John was not successful by the world's standards. He's living in exile. He's lonely. He's probably quite miserable and almost certainly undernourished, unprovided for. He's bearing a cross. He's a bit like Paul in, in 2 Corinthians twelve seven, where Paul says, because of the surpassingly great revelations, I was given a thorn in the flesh. That's the same word, actually, as the title of this book. A messenger from Satan to, to, to torment me, says Paul. Paul was given that, that messenger from Satan, that tormenting, because of the revelations that he'd received. There is this, way we've got to think about it as um, given in code for the first uh, century Christians. It reminds me actually of one of my all-time favorite Calvin and Hobbes strips, where, uh, where Calvin is being bullied by his, one of his arch nemeses, a guy by the name of Mo. Anyone remember Mo? You know who Mo is? Mo is the bully, the school bully. And uh, Mo would always call Calvin Twinkie, Twinkie. And at one point he comes and says to me, hey, Twinkie, give me, give me a quarter. And when Calvin Hosmer was in the quarter was actually worth some candy, you know. It was worth something. So Calvin looks at Mo, this big brute, and he says to him, your Simeon countenance suggests a heritage unusually rich in species diversity. <laughs> I've committed that to memory because it's so funny. Um, and Mo says, huh? <laughs> and Kelvin flicks him his, his cord. He says, that was worth 25 cents. <laughs> that is what the revelation is. It's bypassing all the Romans' ability to figure out what John's talking about because they are not first century Jews. They don't know the Old Testament. I say all that about John to say, be careful about judging by numbers and popularity. And finances. My friends, uh, this is not always the case, but that usually indicates a lack of kingdom success. We're not of this world. We shouldn't be judging by this world's standards. Right, the style of the book. The, bo the book is written in the apocalyptic style. The apocalyptic simply means revelation. It's a Greek word. We've just kind of stolen it from Greece. We've, we've stolen it to mean all kinds of things that it didn't originally mean. We've stolen it to firstly mean a style of writing. We see it in, in um, Ze uh, Zechariah. We see it in Daniel's 
prophecies. We see it in, in certain parts of scripture. And John adopts it in this book as well. And uh, it is really about symbolism. And Kylie, can you get that second video ready? Symbolism in the Revelation. Let's go with that. at the Song of Songs. Here it's very helpful to know that these images and metaphors in Hebrew poetry are not primarily visual. If you try and paint a picture of these people based on the metaphors, you will end up with something that looks very, very strange. What you're supposed to do is reflect on the meaning of these images as they relate to the man and the woman. a picture out of what you see, a conglomeration picture. That's not what's intended to happen. We, Western thinking people, have a very hard time doing that. We tend to want to paint the picture of the woman in Song of Songs, and we end up with something that looks very weird, not at all attractive. The whole point of it is to, build, is to paint this picture in our mind of something very attractive. The the images we see through the book of Revelation are not primarily visual. We're supposed to do something else. We're supposed to reflect on the meaning of each of them as they relate to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be using, through the series, I'm going to be using icons and emojis. I've got a slide up for that. Um, just to show you what, I, what I'm thinking, where we can, um, we, can, we can put various images to a picture that they're painting us and look at them individually without having to get caught up in uh, a, a single conglomerate image. Pictures paint a thousand words. And mostly the images that are being created in Revelation are very one-dimensional metaphors of some attribute or other. The key to the symbolism is almost always found in the Old Testament. And as I said, it's fairly cryptic. I want you to just take a guess. I mentioned this in the prayer meeting, so if you were there, you're not allowed to say this, but... How many references to the, to the scriptures do you think I found? This is just me. This is not an exhaustive study. In those first eight verses, how many scriptural references do you think I found in eight verses to other parts of the Bible? Anyone take a wild guess? Twelve? Anyone else? I counted 29. 29 references to the Old Testament. That is what this book is all about. We need to be, have our, our feet firmly in the Old Testament and the New Testament. John often references the New Testament writings too. And a lot of it is alluded to. He's alluding to various verses. And I'm going to go through some of it today. Especially the apost uh, um, apocalyptic literature, but also poetry and prophecy and narrative and law and the New Testament. Especially with regards to the now and the not yet aspect of Jesus Christ and of Christ's kingdom. 
Mark Leighton, I've got another slide up here. Mark Leighton says, the entire book is saturated in language of the Old Testament. It's designed for people who know their Old Testament, as the Jews would have done. Jews would understand, Romans would not. It's a wonderful filter for a revelation. I will tell you that John also relies on mythologies in his book, in his writing. Mythologies. Would God use pagan mythologies? Yes, he does it all the time. He did it often in the Old Testament, in the history books, especially in Genesis. He did it in Acts with Paul in Athens. And he's doing it again here. So here's a bit of homework for you. Um, I'm going to be mentioning a thing called the Wild Hunt. The Wild Hunt. You probably don't know what it is, but you've seen it time and time again. Two things I want us to do with it. Firstly, find out what it is, mythologically. And then look for some references, some pop culture references, especially in movies and books and songs of the, of the Wild Hunt. For us to see how mythology actually does infiltrate our lives. God has never been shy to take from mythologies and bend them to his will. They're all his anyway. And so we shouldn't be either. We shouldn't be shy to see that he uses mythologies himself. All numbers in this book are symbols. And when they are literal, they are also symbols. There are literally seven churches. But those seven churches are also symbols. There's another slide I have up of the seven churches. That's kind of a rough map of Asia Minor. There's John on Patmos on his knees, and he's sending a letter. You see the little icon of the letter? That is being sent to the seven churches. Right, these are seven letters, seven churches. There's actually more than seven churches. Why did John only pick these seven? Because that fits into his, his meta-narrative, right? There's also another um, a little bit of revelation happening here, that there are seven candles, and Jesus walks amongst the candles. And those seven candles are the seven churches. The lights on them are the leaders or the elders of the churches. And so we have a, 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 a heaven perspective of what's happening on earth, and we have an earth perspective. There's John on his knees, hungry, thirsty, lonely, praying for. But in heaven, there's a, a whole other thing happening. Christ is walking in amongst his churches. And so that's, this is the way in which we need to um, unpack these scriptures. Let's look at the next slide. There are also seven spirits. There's a robe, there's a sash, there's white hair, there's sword, there's stars, sun, there's a key. This is very much emoji language that he's using. And we need to separate them all and look at them each individually. The church is one I've kind of combined together with the, 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 the lanterns or, the, or the, the lampstands and the flames. They all have symbolism and symbolic meaning. We must be ready to find symbolism everywhere. Now here's two quick examples. In Revelation 4, um, John has this moment where the angel says to him, Look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and John turns around to see the lion. And what does John see? He sees a dead lamb, a slain lamb. So which is it? Is it a, a live lion or a slain lamb? It's both. It's both. 
Another one is in Revelation 21, where, where another angel says to him, Look, the bride of Christ has made herself ready. And John turns to look, and it's a city coming down out of heaven. So which is it? Is it the bride of Christ or is it the city? It's both, again. And we've, we need to force ourselves to think a different way. And the way that I think we need to be thinking is what I, what I call abstract thought. Abstract thought. We are not that good at abstract thought. It's pretty amazing when I've, when I've traveled through Africa, um, a, a lot of the local people will really battle with concepts like just keeping time, keeping being on time for things. That's a very Western way of thinking. If I can say that without being in any way derogatory, I'm, I'm not intending to. But man, do they get abstract thought? <laughs> they really do. We've got to we've got to work to find our way back to abstract thought because we're born with it. You have a conversation with a three-year-old, and you will know all about abstract thought. But our education, uh, the chemical attack through medicine and food on our bodies. Our entertainment is, 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 is trying very hard to literalize the abstracts in our minds, in our thinking. I think that it is, a, it is an intentional attack of the enemy to try and get us not to think this way so that we don't understand what God is telling us in books like the Revelation. Here's a good example, this next slide. Salvador Dali, the great surrealist painter. That's him in the corner there looking very weird. And two of his paintings, the, the one on the top right is called The Burning Giraffe, as, as if that's the only disturbing thing about that painting. The other one is called The Temptation of St. Anthony. And um, I've seen those things before in a dream somewhere, right? It's very much dream language, but he, what he's done is he's taken it out of the dream and he's literalized it into a painting. And I don't think that's a very helpful way of interpreting, literalizing the abstracts. I believe that God's enemies are trying very hard to reconfigure humans. Here's another one, another slide, special effects in movies. I love how the Velociraptor guy is wearing Crocs. That to me is wonderful. But that's how they do it. This is some, just some insight as to how the visual effects are created. But I look at special effects and I think basically what I'm doing is I'm saying my imagination is inadequate. I'm going to pay you to give me your imagination. And it is an attack against our abstract abilities to think. How do we fight against this? We need to keep the creative alive. We need new songs. Dawn read a, a, a psalm today. Sing a new song to the Lord. We need to be singing new songs. Make up a song in your head. Poetry, art, math, entrepreneurship. The creative disciplines, I believe, are part of our worship and our spiritual understanding. They're extremely important. We, we need to value them again. You see, the abstract is opposed to the concrete in our, in our way of Western way of thinking. The concrete is real, right? The concrete is, is, is true and, 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 uh, and dependable. Biblically, that's not the case. Biblically, all we see around us is vapor, according to the writer of um, the Ecclesiastes. The real, the concrete, is, is somewhere in heaven, 
a place where we, where we can only access through abstract thought. The scripture I have up, Colossians 3, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The concrete is in heaven. The concrete is in the spiritual. Father may it be on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I don't believe that we can actually think this way without abstract thought. I don't even think imagination gets us there. Because 1 Corinthians 2 says that, that, the, that what no heart has imagined are the things that God has prepared for us. Imagination itself is inadequate. And so there's this, this, this attempt to reform our thinking. Our education is an attempt to reform our thinking away from the abstract. We exchange abstract thoughts for literal and lateral thinking. And those are wonderful gifts. They give us wonderful things. But we lose a lot in the process. These things make us narrow. In Jordan Peterson's word, they, they turn us into low-resolution thinkers. Everything gets reduced to a dollar value, as if that is concrete. The one thing I know for sure is not at all concrete eternally is money. <laughs> but we, we regard that as the, the base value of everything for all eternity. And it's not. I also think about some of the new neurological conditions we're having. We're seeing people have in vast numbers in a, on, a, on a huge increase. It's less people thinking abstractly. Dream thought is what I think about it as. We need to learn, relearn to think in the abstract. It is only the abstract that gives us access to the spiritual. Are you okay with that? I think that's what the Bible is telling us. Let's look at Job 33, 14 to 17. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that they may, that they may turn aside from his deed. This is one of the ways in which God speaks. Are we just switched off to that? Is that just not part of our, our, our canon of theology at all? Dreams are symbolic. They're not supposed to be taken literally. Sometimes we dream to tell ourselves what's going on. Our subconscious has access to things that our conscious mind does not. And we need to be faithful to interpret that. That has been so tremendously helpful for me through my physical issues. Of interpreting what my dreams actually mean. Not my God dreams, just me dreaming. Telling myself stuff. Oh, that's what this, this is about. It's all symbolic, right? And then I can actually deal with stuff in my life, if I'm honest with it. We dream in symbols, and God speaks in symbols. Now, I'm not suggesting that John did not experience these visions, but I am suggesting that what he saw was there were visions. Be careful as you read this book about focusing on the background, especially when the background is given to us as intentionally obscure. I spoke a few weeks ago about watching The Voice, and I'm very interested in music. I, I want to know about the band. I want to know how they play, what instruments they're playing, who's playing what, but that's hidden from me. Every now and again, they get a bit of a, a feature, but 
the focus is on the voice, the singing voice, right? The band is there to support. We've got to be careful about ignoring the main thing of the book of Revelation because I think that there's something more valuable or more important going on in the background. Be careful when you're reading the book about literalizing perceived sequence. Sequence is not necessarily literal as you read through the book. Okay, so a couple of little ground rules about what I believe Revelation is not and then what I believe it is. What Revelation is not. I don't believe that the Revelation is a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. The Revelation must make sense to all of John's readers for the last 2,000 years. Not just to me who happens to be living now. It's also not a cause for division in the church. None of us should be dividing ourselves, unfriending each other on Facebook over this book and our interpretations of it. I also don't think that, that the revelation is a concealing. It's called a revelation, but it's a revelation with a very clever concealing happening inside of it because of the Roman issue. And so it's not a, it's not a concealing, but it is in a way. It's extremely cleverly written. What the revelation is. The revelation is a very, very large picture. And it's not a picture from our perspective. We must approach it with great amounts of humility. We should be looking for optimism, for victory through the book, not for dystopia. You know that saying, if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. We need to be thinking about this book with optimism. I also believe that the Revelation is sensible reading for John's original readers. It needs a contextual anchor. And John's readers knew the Old Testament. All right, so with my remaining time, I'm going to attempt to go through these first eight verses with you very quickly. The first one, verse one, let's have a look at that quickly. That's on our next slide. It is a revelation of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his agent to his angel, his agent too, to his servant, John. He is the theme. He is the focus. It's a revelation that God gave him. It is, this revelation has been father approved. The bits that needed redacting, the Father has redacted. So look at the sequence of events here. This is from God to Jesus, to his angel, to John, to Jesus' servants, and then to us. Why is there this line given? It's a bit like a relay race. I believe that it's given to emphasize the accountability and the value, the importance of this book. That this is a heaven book. You know, the Bible is given to us not through one man in a cave, as I like to say, as many other religions are. One man in a cave, no accountability, nobody else was there, nobody can confirm the witness of what happened, just one man in a cave. The Bible's not given to us that way. Um, 
the vast, vast majority of the Bible is given to us with multiple layers of human witness. Well, the revelation is not. The revelation is, 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 could be a one-man-in-a-cave scenario, but it's given to us with a bunch of heavenly witness, a layer upon layer upon layer of heavenly accountability. It's the way God operates. I said some of it is redacted. Revelation 10, the voice of the thunders, the first seven verses. God says, don't write that down. Much like he did in Daniel's uh, writing. Jesus is the revealer, but Jesus is also the one revealed. Okay, let's have a look at this next slide. I hope you're still with me. This is kind of my summary slide of the whole book, the eight sevens of the revelation. I've given a little... A little emoji icon in gray behind each. Hopefully you can see it there. The first three chapters, God is glorified, glorified Savior in the midst of his seven churches. Look for how Jesus is glorified through this book. When you're looking through the book, look for the term open. The term open normally indicates a change of scenery. Except in the instance when the seals are open, because they're all opened. But the first one, the first opening of the first seal is a change of scenery. The seven letters to seven churches is uh, the first uh, three chapters, really. Chapters 4, 1 to 8, 1. The Lord of history, the only one who opens, he, he, that one, he's opening the seven seals. Seven seals and seven openings. Then 8.2 to 11.18, Jesus reigns amidst the judgments that are coming, the seven trumpets with seven warnings. Then 11.19 to 15.4, Jesus is victorious against the dragon, the sum total of all spiritual evil of God's enemies. This is seven appearances of seven persons, and I've tried to give a little icon for each of them there. There's a woman, there's the dragon, there's a child, there's two beasts, there's the Lamb of God, and there's Michael, the archangel. Then 15.5 to 16.21, Jesus expresses anger, God's anger against the rebellious and commands wrath upon them. Seven bowls with seven wraths are poured out on the earth. Then 17.1 to 19.10, Jesus is the destroyer of the godless Babylon. And the goddess Babylon is sometimes referred to as Egypt in the Old Testament. This is the sum total of all the human evil, all of God's human enemies. So first he deals with his spiritual enemies, then he deals with his human enemies. Seven words of seven judgments. Then in 1911 to 21.8, Jesus is the victor, the victor over sin and Satan, the dragon. Seven visions of seven triumphs. That's why I'm using the peace sign for that one. Because it's victory, not the peace sign. It's the victory sign. It's both the peace sign and the victory sign. I'm thinking about it as the victory sign, right? Winston Churchill's victory salute. And then lastly, the bringer of the new heaven and the new earth from 21.9 to the end of the book. Seven visions of seven triumphs. Um, see Jesus' glory in it all. That's supposed to be seven glimpses of eternity, actually. Seven glimpses of eternity. So John says that these are things that must happen soon. 
you reflect on the meaning of these things as they um, impact or relate to Jesus. Some things are going to happen to Jesus. Something Jesus is going to make happen. And And a good summary of the book would be, the revelation is the past, the present, and the coming victories of Jesus. So in verse 4, John addresses now his audience to the seven churches in Asia. Grace and peace to you. So grace and peace, says John, are two things that we need. We need both. We need both grace. We need peace. You cannot apply God's grace without his peace. And this is why I think that the book is a book about optimism. Because if we don't apply God's peace to our lives, we are not going to be gracious with the world around us. If we lose a sense of peace... We are, we are in trouble. And the book is given to us from three individuals, says John. Firstly, he says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. That's our next slide, the Father. He inhabits eternity. I think a better way of saying that is eternity inhabits the Father. And not only does he inhabit eternity, he's also with you and with me. And he's willing to be with you and with me. That's the most amazing part of it. The second that it is from is from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who is this? What are seven spirits before his throne? What does that mean? I believe this is the Holy Spirit. But why seven spirits? Let's now do some of the work that I've been speaking about. Let's look at Isaiah 11 verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That, those are seven things to meditate on. That's another bit of homework we can do this week. This is the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits before the throne. It is the Holy Spirit. You see how it's given singular the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then, it, then unpacks facets of who the Spirit is, what the Spirit can do, what the Spirit brings to the party on earth. This is how I believe we are to read this book. And then, of course, from Jesus Christ, John adds some detail about who Jesus is in the next, uh, you can go to the next slide even. He's a faithful witness. Here he's referencing 1 Timothy 6.13, Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He's the, he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. Here he's referencing Colossians 1.18. The head of the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's calling Jesus preeminent by referencing him this way. It's much safer to say that than to say, Jesus is preeminent to a a, a culture that wants to execute you for not worshipping the emperor, right? The ruler of the kings of earth, Psalm 89, 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And then John gives a doxology, a word of praise, a hymn. He starts off by saying, to him, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He's referencing there one Peter of being ransomed by the blood of God. Being ransomed by his blood. You know the US government does not deal with kidnappers. They don't negotiate with kidnappers. But our God does. 
Isn't that an amazing thought? He, he not only negotiates with them, but he wins completely in the negotiation as well as everything else. He's ransomed us by his blood. To him who made us a kingdom of priests, to his God and Father. That references Ezekiel 19. The whole idea of the first place was that we would be a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2 as well. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Look, he says, look, he's coming on the clouds. That's the next slide. He's coming on the clouds. Look, he's coming. If you want to look at the clouds, which way do you look? Do you keep a level head? Keep a level head in these uncertain times. No, we need to look up. Up where the clouds are. We need to keep our heads raised and our gaze fixed on what's happening in heaven. It's a symbol for what's going on in heaven. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Jesus is the cloud rider. We know this from Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Jesus is the cloud rider. There are many traditions and mythologies where the gods ride the clouds. There's a series on, on one of the uh, TV networks at the moment called The Monkey King. The Monkey King, and his whole thing is that he rides on the clouds. This is a very Eastern approach. Lots of traditions have gods riding on the clouds. Why riding on the clouds? Because it speaks of Jesus' transcendence. He has equal authority on earth as he does in heaven. Both realms. And he ends off by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The Alpha and the Omega. He uses the Greek alphabet to speak about himself as the beginning and the end. Who was and is and is to come. He's now claiming sameness with the Father, the Almighty. All of this, my friends, is happening in the courts of heaven. All of this has its focus in the courts of heaven. Jesus is there right now, proving himself, extending his authority. But it has implications for us on earth. And I'm going to show you one now. Let's look at the next slide. Alpha and Omega. Delta and Omicron. You see, what's happening in heaven right now is a question. Are we going to bow in fear to the Delta and the Omicron? Or are we going to bow in recognition of his lordship to the Alpha and the Omega? That is a direct attack on what's happening in heaven. The Delta, that's the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet. So in other words, post-Trinity, what does the enemy want to do? He wants to usurp the Godhead. What is Omicron? Omicron is a lowercase o. Well, it's not really a lowercase o. It's little o. It's, that's what it means. O-micron is a better way to say it. O-micron as opposed to omega. Big O and little o. They're two separate letters of the Greek alphabet. They're not lowercase and uppercase. And that's what's happening. Are we, going to, are we going to bow in fear? Oh, look at this. Delta and Omicron's coming my way. Are we going to acknowledge the glory and the lordship of God over all of it? There'd be many versions of that through the histories. John says that he's a witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is court language that he's using. The council room in heaven is holding hearings right now. And you and I are witnesses. Our faith is being called in as witness to the glory of God. 
Jesus is establishing his authority. Daniel chapter 7 is happening right now in heaven. He's being given the kingdom of God. He's giving testimony. The enemy is busy being judged. The courts are taking action. If I look at these five verses, Job chapter 1, Isaiah 6, Daniel 7, Zechariah 3, and Revelation 4 and 5, they all are of the same thing, the courtroom of heaven. But in Job and Isaiah, there's a person missing, Jesus. The others, he starts to appear. God's counsel room, his court, we need to be focusing our attention on what's happening there. You see, my next slide, the, the Ancient of Days has a newly minted ally, and he's called the Almighty. Jesus comes for salvation. And Jesus also comes to remove lamps and lampstands. I'll get into that next week. Can I, can I tell us, my friends, it's up to us. We should not be attending a church whose lampstand has been removed. It's up to us. We should be at a church where the Spirit of God is present and active, not just where it's comfortable. That's on, that's on us. We need to commit where the Spirit is because Jesus comes to remove lampstands. None of those seven churches mentioned in Revelation still exists. Not one. And then, of course, Jesus will come again one day, visible to all. Maybe the worship team could come up and I'm going to pray for us as we end. The Almighty. We are introduced in the first eight chapters to the Almighty. The Almighty, Jesus Christ. And John says in verse 3 that there's a blessing for those who read these words out loud, for those who appropriate them, who take them seriously, who respond to them. Christ is near. So as I get ready, I'm going to just pray for us. This is from Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for appearing in heaven as King. King of earth, King of heaven, King of the past, King of the present, King of the future, King of all time, the Almighty. Thank you for appearing, not just to judge, but to, to appearing on our behalf. I pray for these overcomers here gathered today, that they will not give up that they will not become distracted from what is happening in heaven. As we dive into this book, Lord Jesus, walk with us, I pray. Show us what you're doing. Give us an indication, Lord God, of your victories. Thank you, Father. Amen. 